Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll once again read Ephesians 5 beginning in verse 1. This time we'll work our way through the whole chapter. Ephesians chapter 5. This is the last Sunday morning that we'll be looking at Ephesians together from this point. We'll finish the book as we have opportunity on Wednesday evenings when we meet together in the middle of the week. This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 5 and we'll specifically be looking at verses 22 to the end of the chapter, but I will read the whole chapter beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper! And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. If we were to ask a handful of people, probably even in this room, what the meaning of marriage is or what marriage is all about, it would be very interesting to compile and contrast and compare all of those different answers. What is marriage? According to many, marriage is about happiness and fulfillment. Marriage is entering into a life with someone who will fulfill you, who will complete you, who will work alongside you, in in order to accomplish your goals in life. Maybe that's how some would define marriage. A more technical definition from Webster's Dictionary would be marriage is the state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. Perhaps marriage could be defined as a covenanted agreement between two individuals to exclusively love and cherish one another until the day of their death. That's getting a little bit closer to the biblical definition, but it still falls short. And the reason that definition, certainly the first definition, somewhat the second definition, and somewhat the last definition, the reason all of those fall short is ultimately because they miss the purpose, the goal of marriage. The most fundamental question in attempting to determine what is marriage, is the question, what does marriage exist for? Why does it exist? Why did God design it? And the unequivocal answer of the scriptures is that marriage exists for the glory of God. Marriage exists, more specifically, in order to display the glorious union that Jesus shares with his bride, the church. Marriage was created First of all, not for our sake, but for God's sake. And that order is very important because I think we can think sometimes that God created marriage and as husbands and wives begin to live and love one another, form families together, God looked at that picture of marriage and said, you know, that's a pretty good picture of what my son does for his church. I think I'll use marriage as an illustration for the union of Christ with his bride. But that's not how God does it. In the eternal mind of God, he purposed that Jesus would be intimately and eternally united to his bride in an indivisible union. And then he designed marriage in order to be a picture of that. Not the other way around. Marriage depends on the union of Christ and his bride. That's where it gets its meaning. So as we work through the passage this morning... I hope that we'll see not only how husbands should love their wives and not only how wives should love their husbands, but I hope more importantly we'll see how Christ loves his bride and how the bride rests in glad submission to her loving husband. If you remember from last week, we looked in the verses that precede this in chapter 5 at what it looks like to walk wisely in this world. And the second aspect of what it looks like to walk wisely was found in verse 18 which said, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And then Paul went on to give some evidences of what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you remember, if you were here last week, when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they will sing from the heart to the Lord. When someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they will give thanks in all seasons, at all times. And when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, in verse 21, they will be subject to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Paul's continuing that theme of a spirit-filled life as we come into verse 22 and look at the relationship between wives and husbands. He's continuing this theme of a spirit-filled life, and even more specifically, he's continuing this theme of a spirit-filled life that submits to one another in love. Only now he is beginning to show these distinct relationships of authority and submission in different settings. He begins with marriage. Next, he'll move to parents and children. And then finally, he'll move to employers and employees or slaves, uh, masters and slaves in his day. And so he's saying a spirit-filled life looks like the proper working of these relationships, authority and submission. And so when we come to talk about marriage, the foundational principle is that marriage is impossible. A Christ-honoring, God-glorifying marriage is impossible apart from a spirit filled life. We can never be godly husbands. We can never be godly wives if we are not strengthened by God's Spirit. So as we work through these verses, we'll see first, how does a wife magnify the glory of the gospel in her marriage? That's verses 22 to 24. How does a wife magnify the glory of the gospel in her marriage? And then second, in verses 20. Two and on, uh, sorry, 25 and on to the end of the chapter, 25 to 33, how does a husband magnify the glory of the gospel in his marriage? How does a wife magnify the glory of the gospel in her marriage? How does a husband do the same? So first, how a wife displays the glory of the gospel in marriage. Wives display the glory of Christ and his union with his bride in their marriage by providing a picture of the church's loving, confident submission to Christ, her husband, her groom. Look at verses 22 to 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then at the end of the chapter, in verse 33, the second half of the verse, he says, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Submission, respect. Those are the words that Paul is using here. Literally, to be subject there in the the translation that I'm using is to submit. Verse 22, be subject. And again in verse 24, just as the church is subject. That that word is submit. Wives, submit to your husbands, just as the church submits to Christ. So what does that word mean? What is submission? As I say that word, I would imagine that there is among some of us a certain recoil. Our culture has painted submission in such a light that it's a very negative thing. The Bible paints it in such a light that it is a very beautiful thing. Submission is a voluntary yielding in love. A voluntary yielding in love. 
In a marriage, a wife submits by lovingly yielding herself or aligning herself under the leadership of her husband. She does so for the purpose of being his helper, her companion, in order to help him to fulfill the particular role and responsibility that God has given him in the marriage. Pastor Rob Green, in a premarital book that he's put together, he, he says the following about what this relationship of submission looks like between a wife and her husband. He says, being a follower does not mean that your opinion is unimportant or that you are less important in the marriage. It simply means that God has ordained one person to ride on the front seat of the tandem bike and the other to ride on the back. The bike will, of course, move faster when both people are pedaling together, so unison and teamwork should characterize your marriage overall. To push that illustration just a little bit farther, we could say the wife is not merely a passenger of a sidecar connected to a motorcycle that her husband is driving. The wife is not along for the ride as an insignificant addition to the husband that her, uh, the agenda that her husband has. Instead, she's a fellow cyclist. She's a companion. She's riding behind her husband on the tandem bike and working along with him as, he, as she follows his lead. A husband who is leading well will recognize, he, he must recognize, that he could never do so effectively apart from the meaningful help and insight and friendship and counsel and support of his wife. And once again, the wife's submission to her husband has a specific goal and purpose. The goal is to portray the relationship between the church and Christ. That's that's why a wife is commanded to submit to her husband, because in her submission she portrays the relationship of the church to Jesus. Look again at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. As the head of the church, Christ has certainly been placed in a position of authority. He has authority over his church. And in the same way, God has placed the husband in a position of authority in his marriage as the head. In our world, authority is often misunderstood merely to mean the right to make decisions. The person in authority has the right to make decisions. Or the person in authority has the right to wield power. Or he has the right to enforce rules. And that's what we think of at times when we think of authority. But in the Bible, authority is very different than that. Of course, it includes being in a position of influence and power. But it refers to using that God-appointed position of authority, using the influence that someone has been given, in order to bring life and fullness and fruitfulness to those under its charge. Biblical authority does not stifle or domineer or manipulate, or destroy. But instead, it uses its position to bring life, to bring to fullness, to bring to completion. That's what authority does. Christ, as the head of the church, is the perfect example of that. He uses his authority always with perfect wisdom, with perfect care, with perfect power, 
He wields his authority in a perfect fashion so that it always produces life in his bride. And the church gladly submits to him. Why does the church gladly submit to her husband, Christ? Because we trust him. Because we know that we can trust him to lead us and to love us with right, loving, good authority. And marriage is designed to be a picture of that. Just as the church submits to Christ, so also the husband, as he leads his wife in a way that resembles the life-giving authority of Christ, the wife gladly, willingly, lovingly submits to his leadership and his authority with confident trust. Of course, there's a problem with that. Husbands, you are not Christ. No husband in the world is Christ. Every husband in this room is flawed by sin. You will often be selfish. Wives, your husbands, I don't need to remind you, are selfish many times. They'll often use their authority for self-serving reasons, or, or perhaps they will abdicate their authority altogether out of laziness and will fail to lead the way that Christ has commanded them to do. Your husband is not Christ, and so what does it look like to honor Christ in a situation where you're being called to submit to a man who is less than Christ? Well, to go back to the tandem bike illustration, submission in those situations doesn't mean that you quit pedaling. It doesn't mean that you try to pump the brakes from the back of the bike to work against your husband's leadership. It doesn't mean, certainly, that you jump off the bike altogether and give up. Instead, you strive to trust the Lord by submitting to your husband. Now, to be clear, the Bible never encourages or gives allowance to a woman to follow her husband into sin. That is not what Paul is saying. Nowhere in the Bible, either, are we ever taught that a woman should subject herself to abuse. Ever. But what Paul is saying is that as a general rule, a wife is called to lovingly yield to her husband's authority, even when she may not agree with his leadership. You can go to 1 Peter 3 later this afternoon and read the first several verses there and see the call for comprehensive submissiveness in the life of a wife. And so the question becomes, Perhaps this is a question wives in this room has asked. How in the world can I do that? Where does the motivation come from in order for me to submit to a man who is as flawed as my husband? Look what Paul says in verse 22 one more time. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord The idea here is that submission to your husband is ultimately an act of submission to the Lord. In the words of John Henderson in another premarital counseling book, he says, Believing wives have been asked to submit to their husbands, not as the husband deserves, but as Christ deserves. Though a wife cannot always trust her husband to lead her well, she can always trust Christ to lead her well. And it is her trust and submission to Christ that enables her to submit to her husband, even when it's hard. Again, a quote from John Henderson. 
A wife's heart attitude toward her husband always reflects her heart attitude toward Jesus Christ. The manner of a wife with her earthly husband always expresses her manner with her heavenly husband. The former gives visibility to the latter. Now, with regard to headship and submission, there need to be a couple clarifications made. First of all, Paul is not saying that all women are called to submit to all men. That's not how it works. Paul is teaching that a woman is to submit to a man in the context of their marriage. Second clarification is that when it comes to biblical headship and submission, we shouldn't think of it in terms of some strict formula. If you pick up a book today on marriage, it will most likely give you some strict formula on what that should look like. What's the role of a husband? What's the role of the wife? And how does that work itself out in specifics? Let me read one more quote. I've got a number of quotes today. One more quote from Brian Chappell. He says, Every couple will have differing personalities, gifts, and situations. We are not obligated to some simplistic set of rules that determines who takes the garbage out, who washes the dishes, or how many hours outside the home a spouse may work or play without crossing some biblical threshold of marital correctness. The Bible is not prescribing a strict formula. Yes, there are guidelines given to wives. There are guidelines given to husbands in the scriptures. But there's no strict formula prescribed. Paul is describing the general dynamics of the relationship and especially the disposition of the heart. And a third clarification, submission is not inferiority. A wife's call to submit to her husband does not mean that she's somehow inferior or less significant in the marriage or in the kingdom of God. In fact, if we're going to make that argument that the wife is somehow inferior or less significant because her role in marriage is submission, then we would also have to make the argument that Christ is less significant than his father because 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the father is the head of Christ and he submits to his father. It's not a matter of superiority or inferiority. It is a matter of distinct ways in which the glory of God in the gospel is displayed. Each of us given a very important role. Husbands to be the authority, wives to follow in loving submission. A very important role that equally magnify the glory of the grace of Christ in the gospel. So how do wives magnify the glory of the gospel in their marriage? They do so by joyfully, willingly following the lead of their husband. For the sake of Christ and with confidence in Christ. So if you're a wife, then a good question to ask yourself would simply be, what does your relationship to your husband communicate about the gospel? Would someone be able to look at your marriage and see this kind of joyful, confident submission that we see between the church and Christ? Are you like the second person on the tandem bike, pedaling along with your husband? Or have you stopped pedaling? Have you started to pump the brakes a little bit? Have you begun to consider even jumping off the bike altogether? The Bible nowhere promises that submission is going to be easy. In fact, biblical submission, as I've said, is impossible. You can't do it in your own strength. It requires the strength of the Holy Spirit. Paul is talking about a spirit-filled marriage. And wife, you cannot muster up the strength to love your husband with humble submission the way Paul is commanding you to do here, apart from a heavy reliance on the grace of Jesus. 
And also, though following God's word will often produce benefits in our marriage, there is no promise in the Bible that if you follow these commands from Paul, you will have a happy or fulfilling marriage. We certainly hope that's the case, but there is no promise given to you as a wife that if you submit to your husband, everything is going to get better. But the Bible certainly does promise that by trusting in Christ in your marriage and by walking in the wisdom of God's word, you will experience the joy and the fullness of a close relationship with your true husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's worth it. It's worth it to honor him in your marriage by confidently submitting to your husband if it means a strengthened, deepened joy and fellowship with your true husband, the Lord Jesus. Wives, then, glorify the grace of the gospel in that way. Now husbands, Paul turns his aim at husbands, and he tells us how husbands glorify, magnify the grace of the gospel in their marriage. Specifically, they do so by loving their wives as Christ loves the church. Husbands, you will magnify the glory of the gospel the union between Christ and his bride by loving your bride the way that Christ loves his bride. And there are two things that we see about Christ's love for his bride in these verses. In verses 22, uh, sorry, 25 to 33, two things that we see about the love of Christ for his bride and therefore the love that a husband should have for his bride. First, Christ loves the church sacrificially. Therefore, husbands ought to love their wives sacrificially. Second, Christ loves the church as his own body. Therefore, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. So first, Christ loves the church sacrificially. Verses 25 to 27, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ loves his church with a sacrificial love. He gave himself up for her. That is the chief expression of the love of Christ for his bride, is that he would be willing to pay the ultimate price for her redemption. If you were here on Wednesday night for Sean's sermon from Psalm 22, then you'll remember that we considered how Jesus, in giving himself up for his bride, subjected himself to the physical agony of the cross, to the emotional agony of having people mock the king as he dies on the cross, but most of all, worst of all, the spiritual agony of experiencing rejection of his father as his father turned the full force of his wrath toward his son on behalf of guilty sinners. Jesus gave himself up for the church because he loved her. He endured the agony of the cross because he loves you. It's the chief expression of his love for his bride. He died for her. And for what purpose did he die for her? Why did he give himself up for his bride? Again, verse 26, in the first part, he says, so that he might sanctify her. Why did Jesus die for his bride? In order to make her holy in order to set her apart for himself. His bride was stained by her own filth and unfaithfulness, and Jesus died to make her clean. In fact, that's what Paul says next. Verse 26, again, he says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus makes us holy. 
He sets us apart for himself, and he does so through the cleansing effect of his word. Originally, that's the word of the gospel that we hear and we believe and we are cleansed from our sins. We are washed clean as we hear the gospel and believe in the Lord Jesus. But then throughout the rest of our lives, Jesus is incessantly sanctifying, cleansing, and washing his bride through his word. What's the ultimate aim of all of this? Where's the goal? What's the end of Christ dying for his bride and sanctifying his bride and washing his bride and cleansing her? What's the end goal? Verse 27. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In other words, Christ has laid down his life for his bride and he sanctifies her through his word simply in order that he might delight in her spotless beauty forever. When Christ returns, he will gather to himself and present to himself the church consisting of every single believer throughout all the ages of the history of the world. He will gather all of them together, and as he gazes on his redeemed people gathered into his presence, he will see the reflection of his own beauty, of his own grace, of his own glory, of his own love, of his own righteousness, shining back at him from the beauty of his people. In daily life, right now, we know that we're far from that kind of bride. We've been declared righteous by Christ. He treats us as righteous. We've been clothed in his righteousness. God sees the righteousness, the beauty, the blamelessness of his son when he looks at you. But in practice, the way we live day in and day out, the church is far from a blameless bride. But Christ, as he continues to sanctify his bride and then one day present his bride to himself, will have washed away every single blemish, every last stain of sin, gone from your life, not just legally, but practically. And the church will shine in the presence of Christ in the radiant beauty of his righteousness. Christ has loved the church sacrificially. He gave himself up for her because he wants to enjoy her beauty, the beauty of his own grace in her throughout all time. And then second, well, Before we get to the second thing, just a reminder, husband, Paul's point here is that's how you're supposed to love your wife. Just as Christ loved his bride in order to make her beautiful, he gave up his life, he died for her, sacrificed himself for his bride in order to make her beautiful. In the same way, husbands, you are to love your wife in order to bring out in her life the full expression of all that God has created and redeemed her to be. Ian Hamilton puts it this way, he says, It belongs to the heart of a husband's love for his wife that he seeks her perfecting in grace. It is in the heart of a husband's love for his wife that he seeks her perfecting in grace. That's your goal as a husband. The full expression of the fruit of Christ's grace in her life. Secondly, husbands should model Christ's love for his church in that Christ loved his church as his own body. Christ loved his church as his own body. Verse 28 Paul says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his, his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. When a husband and a wife are joined together in marriage, they become one. Verse 31 of this chapter in Ephesians 5, Paul is quoting from what we read earlier in Genesis 2 regarding the one flesh union, the joining together of husband and wife. And certainly that refers to the physical union of a husband and a wife, but it goes far beyond that. The one flesh union, the oneness of a husband and a wife has to do with their shared life together. The one can no longer be thought of apart from the other. The husband can no longer be thought of as an independent entity from his wife. The wife can no longer be thought of as an independent entity from her husband. They are brought together to join an inseparable unit. But what's amazing is that Paul says, what's true of a husband and wife, yeah, that's, that's good, you should remember that, but actually what I'm most excited about is the fact that this talks about the church and Christ and the union that they share together. Yes, husbands, love your wives and, and, and remember that she's one with you, but remember most of all that the church is one with Christ. This mystery of union, of oneness between the husband and the wife is actually the mysterious picture of the union between Christ and his bride. Just as the husband and the wife are joined together in an inseparable union, so Christ has been joined to his church in an inseparable union. And what we conclude then is that the church can no longer be thought of in any way independently of Christ, and by his own design, Christ can no longer be thought of independently from his church. There is a oneness now, a distinctness in persons, obviously, but a oneness, an intimate joining of Christ and his bride that makes them one body together. And this oneness assures us of Christ's nourishing care for us. It gives us the certainty that Christ could not do anything other than nourish you and cherish you as his bride. How do we know that? Well, Paul says in verse 29 and 30, this one flesh union, this becoming one together, it means that if, if Christ were to despise you as his body, it would be despising himself. If he failed to love you, it would be failing to love himself. If he failed to nourish you with all of the comfort and provision that you need, if he failed to care for you with gentle care, he would be failing to do that for himself. Christ cannot think of you as something other than his own body. I'm thankful that Paul includes both nourishing and cherishing here. Nourishing refers to provision. He provides what we need for growth, for comfort. But cherishing refers to the tender affection that he has for us. You can nourish something like a pet without necessarily having tender care for it. But Christ doesn't nourish us as some mere obligation. He nourishes us because he cherishes us. He tenderly, affectionately cares about his bride. And again, that's the pattern for husbands. Just as Christ loves the church as his own body, so husbands love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands should seek to nourish their wives, especially through the effects of the Scriptures, exposing your wife to large portions of biblical truth that God might use it in her life to bring her to completion in Christ. And husbands should cherish their wives, showing evident affection for them. Genuine care for their needs. Husbands, nourish and cherish your wife. 
And that's how husbands then magnify the glory of the grace of the gospel, the union between Christ and his church, sacrificially loving their wives and nourishing them as their own bodies. So a good question to ask yourself then, as a husband, what does your relationship with your wife communicate about the gospel? If someone were to base their understanding of Christ's love for the church only on the way, if all they had to look at was the way that you love your wife, what kind of conclusions would they come to regarding the love of Christ for his bride? Once again, it's important to remember, husbands, you cannot do this in your strength. No husband in this room can love their wife the way that Paul is commanding them to do apart from the grace of the gospel and the Spirit's help. And so what husbands, what we need to do is live daily in the light of the love of Christ for his bride to saturate our minds and our hearts with the way that Christ loves his church, to have that fill us so that the Spirit might use that to enable us to love our wives effectively the way that Christ loves his church. Again, husbands, if you love your wife, hopefully good things will come in your marriage and it will be a happy and joyful marriage. But there's no promise of that. The Bible never promises that if you love your wife as Christ loves the church, everything is going to get better in your marriage. But it does promise you that you will know the joy of being more and more shaped into the image of the true husband. So we've seen then that the purpose of marriage is to magnify the glory of the gospel, specifically the union between Christ and his bride. Husbands do that as they love their wives. Wives do that as they submit to their husbands. One of the primary takeaways then, in closing, that we must have when it comes to marriage and from this passage is that marriage must be radically Christ-centered. God's ultimate goal for your marriage is not the same as your goals for your marriage, at least not when we think of it in selfish ways. His goal for your marriage is to make it a good display of his grace. Marriage is a good thing. We read earlier from Genesis 2 that God calls it good, very good. But even as something that is very good, marriage is not the best thing. Marriage is momentary. The best marriages in the world come to an end. Jesus teaches us in the Gospels that men and women will not be given in marriage in heaven. But the union between Christ and his bride is not momentary, it is eternal. And the primary purpose of our momentary marriages is to reflect the reality of that eternal marriage. And an understanding of that, when we, when we understand the right place of our marriage in God's big picture of redemption of all that he is doing in Christ, then it helps us, it prevents us from putting imbalanced hope and emphasis on marriage. I know that as we talk about marriage, there are all sorts of different situations represented in this room, and it provokes all sorts of different responses in the heart. There are people in this room who continue to experience the pain and the grief of a lost spouse. I mentioned that in the prayer, and, and also those who struggle because they long to be married, and they seem to be living in the world of the unmet desire for marriage. Some have the painful experience of divorce. They look back, and perhaps they live with regrets, and as they think about marriage, what it does in their hearts is it provokes guilt. And some in this room are in difficult marriages, very difficult marriages perhaps, and the passage only reminds you of how less than ideal your marriage is. But the 
topic of marriage and what Paul is teaching us in these verses reminds us that it speaks hope. The marriage picture speaks hope into every single one of those situations. Because it reminds us that no matter what our marital status might be, whatever our experience with marriage might be, in Christ we are part of a far more meaningful marriage, a far more satisfying marriage. Our comfort and our identity are not found in whether we are married or not married, whether we have a healthy marriage or an unhealthy marriage. Our comfort and our identity and our hope is found in the fact that we belong to the bridegroom, to Jesus, who has loved us with an everlasting love and who has given himself up for us so that we will be forever joined to him and will forever receive the loving, nourishing, cherishing care of a good and faithful authority. And to whom, as the church, we gladly and joyfully submit because we love him, because we trust him. This morning, we have the opportunity of being reminded of this union that exists between Christ and his bride in the Lord's table. Jesus tells us that we're to eat the bread and to drink the cup in remembrance of him, and specifically in order to remember his death. Every time we eat the bread, every time we drink the cup, we are remembering Christ gave himself up to make us his bride. We don't come to the table this morning to eat the bread and drink the cup because of some merit of our own. We do not share fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ because of anything that we have done. We are in Christ through faith only because the Savior has laid down his life for his bride. And as we eat and as we drink the, the, the bread and the cup together, we're reminding ourselves there's nothing more that's needed. Jesus has done everything required to bring his bride to himself through his death and resurrection. He's done everything required to sanctify her, to make her holy, and he will one day return and present the bride to himself in all of her beauty and in all of her glory. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're remembering, one, Christ died for us to do that, but two, we are longing for him to come. We long for the bridegroom to come and to redeem the bride and draw her to himself that we might share in that final marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of our hope, the hope of sins forgiven and the hope of Christ's return. Because it represents hope for those who are in Christ, the Lord's Supper is only for those who are in Christ, who are Christians. If you're not a Christian, then we would ask you not to take of the Lord's Supper this morning, um, but we would remind you of what these elements represent. There's nothing special in the bread or the cup itself, but they point you to the body of Christ which was hung on the cross, the blood of Christ which was spilled for you, and it assures you that if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and in repentance, the forgiveness of sins that's represented in the Lord's Supper is offered to you. And so we would encourage you and, and even urge you this morning to consider where are you with Christ? Have you trusted in him? Do you belong to him? And if not, come to him and find the freeness of forgiveness that he offers. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and as I do that, uh, following that, we'll come up to the front and take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, as everyone has had the opportunity to make their way through the line, we'll stand together and we'll respond by singing once more. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for the way that it reminds us of what we often forget. It reminds us 
of the love that you have for your people, the bride of Christ. It reminds us, Father, that your love for us is not dependent on the beauty of the bride, but you have redeemed us by your grace in order to make her beautiful. Father, we thank you that we as your people can rest wholeheartedly on the merits of Jesus Christ, not trusting in our ability to keep your commandments, not trusting in our ability to walk righteously, but trusting in Christ who has walked righteously in our place and who has been crucified as our substitute for our forgiveness. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity this morning to take the Lord's Supper and to be reminded of those truths. And we pray that as we do that, by your Spirit, you would strengthen our faith and encourage us in the hope of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.